All right, I want to thank you so much for the music. Uh, thank you, uh, Tina and DeGenity, for uh, taking some time to uh, lead us in worship this morning. Um, it was a truly magnificent, powerful moment for me. I know it is for you guys as well. And I uh, really want to encourage you guys in the time of Thanksgiving to truly be thankful for the blessings that God has uh, continued to pour down upon us. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open up to the book of uh, Daniel. And it's funny, you know, one, one thing we can be thankful for in this time of uh, corona and uh, time of uh, forced, uh, enforced isolation, uh, that... You shouldn't have an excuse not to have your Bible, right? You can't say you left it at home. You can't say you left it in your car. You can't say you left it on your shelf um, because you're right around all those things. So uh, my suggestion is if you don't have your Bible with you, um, pause the video, jump up, grab it, come back, and hit play again because um, it's important that you have this. There is, I'd say, between this week and next week, it, this is going to be a really, um, a really powerful time in the book of Daniel. And I can't stress enough just how important this is. Um, the reason why I say it's so important, one of the reasons why we restudy the book of Daniel is because it was one of the books that was on the mind of Jesus when he was walking and preaching. We know that because in Matthew 24 and in uh, Mark chapter 13 and Luke chapter 21, it was such an important moment in the life of the disciples and the lives of Jesus, in the life of Jesus, that um, there was recorded in three of the four Gospels. Uh, they call it the Olivet Discourse. It's a time when there was like this, it was really a private uh, time almost like a almost like an action briefing time that that Jesus had with just four of his disciples. He didn't even gather the whole group together. It was it was his three usual suspects, you know, Peter, James, and John, and then Peter's brother Andrew. So the four disciples came together and they asked Jesus three questions. Three questions that I think are on the minds of of most Christians, and that is, you know, when. Are you going to come back again? When is when is the kingdom coming? Right? Oh, uh, what um, what should we expect? And in and what would be the signs of that that time coming? And and when will the end of the world actually happen? These are like three big questions. And I know right now in our nation, as we're going through lots and lots of turmoil, as we're dealing with all kinds of frustrations in the media and the news and um, and, and the, the presidential elections and uh, just all the stuff that just, it seems to be that we're clinging. You know, I say this now for the last several, well, I don't know, so almost want to say last few months, um, but it's not getting any clearer. It's like everything is about as clear as mud. And depending upon who you ask and which side they're on, they're going to give you a different answer and the, the reality is is that that we the children of God we know where our hope is where our hope is in Jesus Christ our hope is not in a man it's not in a political party it's not in a um, in a pathway forward I remember once a, a friend of mine said to, said you know I just I wish that that a that this that a famous actor you know would 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 get saved I mean really famous like an a-list actor would get saved and then turn their life around and 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 just be 100% you know all in for Jesus in the uh, uh, in their in their job field like as they made movies and as they started to go on their uh, their press junkets and they started talking more and more about Jesus wouldn't that be great and I'm thinking to myself then as I think now is is you know we don't need God doesn't need some superstar spokesman he has us he doesn't need um, a, a candidate from a political party to, to represent him. He, he has us. 
He has the church. He has each and every one of us that has been called to serve him and to follow his plan. Now, in that, there have always been certain rock star individuals that are that are just phenomenal, ones that we turn our minds to. I know my own personal heroes, I go back in my faith, Jonathan Edwards, I love reading the man's sermons. You know, obviously, uh, uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, uh, definitely a powerful and engaging speaker. I love reading his stuff. Um, we mentioned on Wednesday when I was uh, sharing and talking with our, mi- our missionary friend, Dr. Uh, Chris Carter from J- Japan, when he said uh, his hero was Hudson Taylor and my hero was William Carey. And, but there's so many other wonderful missionaries. Lottie Moon comes to mind. Right now, we're getting ready to start our, our traditional Lottie Moon offering um, that we're going to be talking more and more about as the days come, um, as the weeks progress. You know, obviously we all have heroes in the faith. There's always been these these rock star type Christians that have been out there that have been serving God, um, and they didn't do it to be known and to be and to have that position of of of, of pride. But in the course of of living their humble. Uh, uh, unashamed life before God, they became recognized for it. But God doesn't need rock star Christians. He just needs Christians that are willing to be obedient to follow him. And if you were to, if you were to say to Daniel, Daniel, are you a rock star Christian? Daniel would say, no, not even close. Because Daniel would say, my hero would be like Isaiah and Jeremiah, which, by the way, he knew Jeremiah, right? Jeremiah was preaching in his hometown before he was carried off into captivity. And so, so much so that, that when, during this chapter that we're going to be reading in a moment, um, Daniel was actually reading the prophet Jeremiah, which I find absolutely amazing because here is Daniel, a prophet, a man who is highly regarded by Jesus Christ, by God, the Holy Spirit. I mean, there is a huge amount of regard for him. And we can get into this and talk about the fact that he was known as highly beloved before God and, and just somebody that was that was special in the eyes of God. But I know Daniel would never have thought that of himself, right? But here he is, 30 years after the death of Jeremiah the prophet, his book, his work that he had written of the prophecies of the coming times and troubles of Israel, were already written and in canon and in scripture and Daniel was already reading them some 450 some odd miles away in Babylon when the things were written in Jerusalem. So it's obvious to me that, that, that Daniel had a, had a deep love for the word of God as we should as well. And so it's amazing how God works all these things out and allows us to be able to have the account of a true rock star Christian who was probably one of the most humble men you would have ever met, even though he was the prime minister of three different, uh, 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 that we know of, rulers, um, and definitely a powerful force politically, emotionally, spiritually, mentally, I mean, all the way around. He laid the groundwork so that the so that we could have the, Christ, the Christmas story that we're going to talk about in a few weeks about the wise men that show up that would not have been there had it not been for Daniel. I mean, everything seems so integrated and so amazing how God works out all these details. So that being said, let's go ahead and turn to chapter 9. We're going to deal with the first half of this today. We're talking about, and I've titled this sermon, The Penitence Prayer. And I know some, some theologians call this the interrupted prayer, but 
we're not going to call it really interrupted prayer because the interruption of this prayer um, is going to be uh, part two of this sermon, which will be next Sunday. So we're going to be dealing just with the first part of this, the prayer from Daniel's heart as he's laying out his heart before the Lord. So let's just go ahead and read the first... I want to say the first 19 verses of this, and then we'll, um, we'll break it down. So starting off in the first verse of chapter 9, Daniel is speaking. He's in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, um, the Median by descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolation of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So I'll pause there just for a second to say this, that like I said just a minute ago, Daniel was reading from the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah had only been, been dead at this point in history. He'd only been dead for about 30 years, we know of. We're fairly certain that um, Daniel or Jeremiah was, um, was martyred or killed by um, stoning um, about 560 B.C. This particular moment in time, because we have a clear understanding of when this happened in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, we know, we know that this was in 538 BC. So it's actually less than 30 years since the death of Jeremiah. But in that time, Jeremiah's words and his book that he had written had been copied enough and added enough to scripture that it was passed on to Daniel that was living in Babylon that had never gone back to Jerusalem as far as we know and as far as scripture teaches. And so he's reading this and he is recognizing that Jeremiah was a prophet and he was, he was, he was given a word from the Lord. Now you'll notice one other thing as we go through this, that the word, the word Lord is used in a couple different ways in this chapter and you need to know this now before we get into this. Oftentimes in the English version we don't see the difference between Lord and Lord and Lord. But there are three or four different words that are used for those terms. And the translators have tried to make it um, easy for us to see when the name changes even though the word stays the same. You'll notice in the second verse, about midway through it, it says that as the word of the Lord, you can underline that, was revealed to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolation. So that word Lord, if you look at that, you can see the way it's the, the in most, almost every translation out there has a slightly different font that's being used where you have all capital letters but the O-R and D is a little bit smaller and you can compare that to chapter, uh, to verse 3 in the very first part of it when it says, so I gave, so I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer. So there's a different word being being used there is being used up in verse 2. The word verse 2 is the word Yahweh, Yahweh, okay? It is the it is the it is the covenant name of God. It's used 7 times in this in this entire chapter. And so the reason why that's happening is because we are now fully into the Hebrew translation part of, of Daniel. We're no longer in the Aramaic part. We're now looking at prophecies that were given specifically to uh, the, the children of Israel. It was going to have impact with the rest of us, but this prophecy primarily was going to the children of Israel. And so 
um, uh, the prophet Daniel was invoking the covenantal name of God, especially in the beginning of this, because he is crying out for the covenantal remembrance of God. And we're going to get through that in a minute. You'll also notice that the word Lord God in verse 3 is the word um, Adonai Elohim. So we have the two different words, and, and Adonai literally means uh, uh, Lord, Creator, but more particularly Owner, right? And then Elohim just means God. So, so we have Creator, uh, Lord, Owner, God in the second, in the third verse. In the first part of that, uh, or in the first uh, part in chapter two, in verse two, is the word Yahweh. So, well, I just want you guys to be aware of that as we're reading this, because you need to know these things. You need to know when Jeremiah is is calling upon the covenantal name of God. And I may not always bring that out, but you need to see that, underline it, and, and use it for your own personal study as you look deeper into this passage. So, moving on in verse three. So Daniel then changes his focus. He's now um, in full in first person. And he says, so I gave my attention, literally my face, to the Lord God, remember the word Adonai Elohim, to seek him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. I prayed to the Lord, remember, Lord Yahweh, the Lord my God, Yahweh, Elohim, and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. And we, sin we have sinned, committed iniquity, acted wickedly, and rebelled, even turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. Moreover, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name in uh, to the to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and all the people of the land, righteousness belongs to you, O Lord, but to us open shame, as it is this day to the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those who are nearby and those who are far away, in all the countries which you have driven them, you have driven them because of their unfaithful deeds which they have committed against you. Open shame belongs to us, O Lord, our kings, our princes, and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong compassion and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him, nor have we obeyed the voice of the Lord, and the voice of the Lord our God, to walk in his teachings which he set before us through his servants, the prophets. Indeed, all Israel has, trans has transgressed your law and turned aside, not obeying your voice. So, uh, not obeying your voice. So the curse has been poured out on us, along with the oath which was written in the law of Moses, the servant of God. For we have sinned against him. Thus he has confirmed his words, which he had spoken against us and against our rulers who ruled us, to bring us to a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done to Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our iniquity by giving attention to your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept the calamity in store and brought it on us. For the Lord our God is righteous with respect to all his deeds, which he has done. But we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, 
who have, who have brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as it is, as it is this day, we have sinned. We have been wicked. O Lord, in accordance with all your righteous acts, let now your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain. For because of our sins and iniquities of our and the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a reproach to all those around us. So now, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his supplications. And for your sake, O Lord, let your face shine on your desolate sanctuary. O my God, incline your ear, open your eyes and see our desolations and the city which is called by your name, for which we are not presenting our uh, supplications before you on account of any merits of our own but on account of your great compassion. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and take action. For your own sake, O my God, do not delay. Because your city, your people, are called by your name. Wow. That's a powerful prayer. It's an amazing prayer. It's an amazing prayer that was written by a man who is genuinely just broken hearted over his people and the, sin, and, the, and the sin and shame and sadness that he felt. And it's amazing how he says we have sinned. But you know the funny thing is that of all the, of all the people in the Bible, as far as I know in the Old Testament, there are only two people that there is nothing evil or, or, or wrong that's re, that, that is recorded about them. Uh, Joseph and Daniel. Neither one of those men, although they had accusations against them, and I know some theologians Theologians would argue with uh, with Joseph that there might have been an implication of pride in the way he described his visions. But the reality is, God Himself never said anything in His Word negative about Joseph or Daniel. And so, for Daniel, who really had never had anything negative to say, as far as we know, now we know he wasn't sinless, but we know that that it, no sin was recorded to him. And for this man to crawl, to fall on his faith, face in sackcloth and ashes and fast uh, for many days about his people and his country was a powerful thing. Now I want you to look at something here and, and, and to really understand this, we need to understand the Sabbath rest. We need to understand what the Sabbath means. I get a lot of questions about what the Sabbath is. And a lot, a lot of people, especially in the, in the evangelical Christian world, they love to say, well, the Sabbath is Sunday, right? That's the day that God ordained, Jesus ordained for the church to, to exist. Well, that's a nice idea, but it's, a, it's not true. There's only one day that's ever been given the signature stamp of the name of God, and that is the Sabbath day, which is always and always has been, and as far as I'm concerned, always will be Saturday. You say, well, well why do we worship on Sundays? Well, I'll tell you why we do. We worship on Sundays because this is not really a day of rest. This is a day of work. Saturday is a time for us to rest, but Sunday is a day that we come here, we work, we worship, and we're about the business of the kingdom, right? And so on the Sunday is really, is for many of us, myself included, it's a day of work. 
And it should be a day of work. It should be a day that we share the, the message of Jesus Christ. And we're following the apostles' examples who time and again in the New Testament made a habit of worshiping on the first day of the week to recognize the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So that's why we worship on Saturday, Sunday and that's why the Sabbath is always the Sabbath. And the thing that we need to remember, and we're going to get into this a little bit more like when we get into chapter 12 and chapter 10 of Daniel and we talk about oh, the whole week's concept next Sunday, the idea of this, this idea of what a week is and what Sabbath rests are. You know, a lot of times we think of a week and we think of seven days, but we need to understand that when God talks about a week, he's talking about a seven set. And there was a week of days, there's a week of weeks, there's actually a feast of weeks um, that, the Israel, that the Israelites um, celebrate every year. And there's a feast, there's a week of, there's a week of years which we're going to talk about at the end of this chapter next, next, next Sunday. Um, and so there are many different brackets of seven that is defined in the Old Testament by God as weeks. This always revolves around seven, and God holds that seven special. Just like he said on the seventh day, which is Saturday, we should rest, he also went on to say that every seven years there needs to be a sabbatical rest for the land. And what that meant was is that, they, that the, the people of Israel were to work and till the land for seven years. Then after seven years, they were to stop tilling the land, and they were to give the land a rest for an entire year. And then they would come back the following year on the eighth year and start that cycle over again. Well, due to the greed and the issues of, of not being prepared and not following God's commandment, they didn't do that from the time they entered into the land of promise until the time that Jerusalem was sacked and they were carried off into captivity, which was talked about by the prophet Jeremiah. And Daniel is now reading this. He's probably in his middle 80s, probably 82, 83, 84, no more than 85 years old. And um, he's sitting there, he's reading this passage because he's looking for, look what it says in the second verse. He's looking for the number of years which was revealed by the Lord to the prophet Jeremiah for the completion of desolations. He is now in that first year of, of Cyrus, the king of Persia, who is, uh, who is about to deliver that wonderful statement that says that, that the Jews are going to be allowed to go back into the land and he knows that the time is coming when, when, the, when the time of exile is going to be at an end. But he's looking for an exactness. Now I think that's kind of amazing because here is Jeremiah, here, I mean, here is Daniel looking to the prophet Jeremiah and believing in an exactness of prophecy scriptures. Because the thing about God is that he never gives us a roundabout uh, ballpark figure when he's trying to be exact. He said 70 years, 70 years is what happened. And 70 years later, they were given permission to go back into the promised land. And so Daniel is praying about that. He knows the time is close. He knows that the, the, the time is about to be up. He's looking into God's word to find an answer for that because... God had told them, because you, for 490 years, didn't do what I told you to do by taking that one year and seven off, I'm now going to take them all at once. All 70 years, they're now mine. You're going to be out of the land, it's going to have rest for 70 years, and then I'm bringing you back. And you're going to go back to work, and you're going to do what you're told. 
And this was a way for, for uh, God's people at the time to go through a time of, um, of punishment and to be able to be remember, reminded just who really is in control, and that's God. And so this Sabbath concept that permeates all the way through Scripture, and I could give you just Scripture after Scripture in the Old Testament that talk about this all the way through um, the first five books when it talks about this concept of a Sabbath rest. Now, that being said, now Daniel is giving his full attention. You remember when I was reading this, I said that, that he said, he, I gave my full attention to the New American Standard, but it, it, the, the, the literal, literal translation of, of attention is face. I turned my face to my Lord God, right? That word Adonai Elohim. He's saying that this is, this is the creator, ruler, owner God of the universe, and this is who I'm now praying to. I'm already invoking the covenant name of God by Yahweh earlier. Now I'm speaking to the God who owns and rules everything. And it says, I'm seeking him by prayer and supplications and fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I mean, I don't even want to get into a discussion about fasting. I, I, about every year or so, well, I'm going to say at least once a year, I do a sermon on fasting. And I think fasting is an important part of our, of our, of our Christian experience. And I know that not everybody medically is capable of doing this, and it's not something that should be entered into lightly, but it's something that we as Christians ought to be doing on a regular basis. I know many Christians that fast twice a week. Some will fast once a week. Some fast once a month. I don't know what your routine and your daily or weekly or monthly plan on rule of life is when it comes to your walk with Christ, but I think that fasting ought to be part of it. And I can tell you for myself that when I'm not, fa when I'm not fasting in my routine, then I'm, I, I feel disconnected sometimes with God. And I personally like to fast at least once a month, if not once a week. And there are times I'm not able to do that, especially like lately with the, um, with the coronavirus going through and needing all of my strength to be able to do this. The fasting really wasn't part of what I wanted to do. But in that, I've been able to have some time of fasting as well because I think it's important as Christians that we do this. Um, and anybody that believes that we're not to be fasting because that's an Old Testament thing, you need to reread your Bible because that's not what it says. Jesus didn't say that we wouldn't fast. He says, when you do fast, this is what you're going to do. Um, but we're not going to get into that. It's not a sermon about fasting. Is a sermon about uh, uh, Daniel. So, he's saying that I prayed to the Lord, and there's that word again, Yahweh. I prayed to the Lord, um, uh, Yahweh, my Elohim, and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God. Awesome there. That, that Hebrew word is Yahweh. It means terrible. Something to be afraid of. It means terrifying. So he's saying here, he says, I'm praying to Yahweh, my God, and I'm confessing. And I said, alas, O Lord, O, o Adonai, my Lord, my owner, great and terrifying that you are. You know, this is the thing he's saying. You're a terrifying individual. You you drive me to my knees. I am. I, I am. I have a, a genuine fear of you. Say, so, well, you shouldn't be afraid of God. Again, read your Bible. The Bible says that we should. That the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. We should have a healthy sense of fear and awe for our God because He is truly great and truly awesome. But look what it says. It says, "Who keeps His covenant?" And there's that wonderful word again. If you've heard me preach once, or or or, or even 
even a dozen times, you know that I can't get away. Every time in the Old Testament, I can't get away from this word loving kindness. I'm just so appreciative of the King James translators when they were putting their, their heads together collectively to come up with, with words to translate some words that are in many ways untranslatable in English. And that's this word. In the Hebrew, it's hesed. And it's spelled a couple different ways. Um, when you transliterate it in English, it's either C-H-E-S-S-E-D or, or just H-E-S-E-D. But it's the word chesed. And that word literally means the covenantal, all-encompassing, full love of God, right? And it's a word that just doesn't have, I mean, you can't put all that in there, right? It's a one word that's trying to encapsulate an idea and a concept that was completely Jewish and completely different than any other religious worldview of that day because no other God, if you will, from any other country had the kind of covenantal love that was that, that, that Yahweh had for his people. And so this word said was translated, when they went to translate they said, we can't find a way to, to make this into one word. So they created a brand new word, the word loving kindness. And now you find it in almost every translation that you have, whether it's the New Living all the way down to the, the, the King James. It's the same basic word, loving kindness, because nobody's been able to, to find a better single word to define the covenantal, all-encompassing, complete and total love of God. And that's what this word is. So when we see loving kindness, I always stop. I always pay homage of it. And I always thank God for his all-encompassing covenantal love. And that's exactly what Daniel was trying to bring out. He says he keeps his covenant, and then he throws that whole covenantal love in there. And for those who love him, remember now, he keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. So there's an, there's an if-then clause. He's going to have his covenant, but we have our responsibility to keep our covenant with him. We're responsible to maintain our fellowship and our connectedness with him, just like the Jews were then. It hasn't changed. It hasn't changed. But you can feel this in verse 4, that Daniel was, his whole mind, his whole heart was filled with the word of God. He was meditating on the words of Jeremiah the prophet. He was filled with the idea and the understanding of, of, the, of the exodus and the covenantal language and the idea that God loved him. And this was all in there while he was fasting and praying with supplications. And then he goes on. He says, here it is. This is what we've done. Six different sins of Israel. This is what he writes. This is what he says. He, he, I'll just give them to you. He, he says, we've sinned. Okay? Well, what does that mean? What is sin? When it says we have sinned, what does that mean? It's a word that means missed the mark. Okay? It was the same word that's used when describing the way a, an archer or a slinger will sling a stone. It was said in, in the Old Testament that there was, a, there was a group of slingers from the tribe of Benjamin that were so good that they could sling a stone and hit a hare at, a, at several paces away. Not a rabbit, but a hare. At least... I think that's what they're referring to. And so, you know, I mean, it's obvious that the idea of, of hitting the mark was important, but sin in this word that's being used in the Hebrew means literally to miss the mark. And then we have the second one, which is to, it says committed iniquity, which in the Hebrew means literally to, to bend or to twist or to create a crooked pathway, right? We've acted wickedly, acted wickedly. We have rebelled. We have 
turned aside from the commandments and the ordinances. When he says we, he's talking about himself too. He knows, like the Apostle Paul, that none are righteous, no, not one. And so he knows that he is just as, just as much in, in, under the judgment of God as any of his people. And he's praying with his people, for his people, on behalf of the sin that he knows he's committed in his heart, and he knows that his people has have too. And he says in the final part, in, in verse 6, says, Moreover, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets. Neither our princes nor our forefathers, we are not listening to the prophets. Wow. The nation was being judged. Look what it says in verse 7. It says, Righteousness belongs to you, O Lord. O Lord, but to us open shame. He says, We, we deserve it. So when the, when the Apostle Paul writes the, word that, writes the word that for the wages of sin is death, when for none are righteous, no, not one, for all have fallen and fall, all, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, it's the same language, just in Greek, not in Hebrew. It's the same idea that we've missed the mark. And, and, and Paul was telling us, just like the prophet, Jeremiah, or prophet Daniel that's saying about his people, Paul was saying about us, about all of humanity. We've all fallen short. And so when we read this, we need to understand that this can apply to us as well. Even though this is written primarily to the Jewish people, we know that we can apply this as well to our own lives. And look what it says here. It says, and, uh, see, uh, and to the men of Judah, that means the, the folks that were truly um, uh, at fault here, which is all of the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem, and it said in all Israel, those who are nearby, those who are far away, and this is the part that if you underline things, underline this in your Bible, it says, you have driven them because of their unfaithful deeds for which they have committed against you. Many people think that Nebuchadnezzar conquered Israel and Jerusalem and took the entire play and took all the people away. But that that's not necessarily true. That is the mechanism that happened, but the reality is, it wasn't that they were conquered, it's that God ex expelled them from their place. From His place. His presence. He said, guys, you haven't done, you haven't done, you haven't done, get out. How many times, parents, have you done that? How many times have you gotten frustrated with your kids and they just aren't listening, and just not doing, you finally just say, hey, go outside and play. Oh, Dad, it's too hot. Oh, Dad, it's too cold. Oh, oh I don't want to go outside. And you just turn to this, I, I can't deal with you anymore. Get out of my sight. You need to be away from me for the next little while or, or something bad's going to happen. Sometimes you got to do that. Now, God obviously is perfect and, and Daniel says that very clearly. He says, righteousness belongs to you. You know, we are the ones that are at fault. But God justly and righteously and, 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 and appropriately disciplined his people for the sin that they had committed. Open shame continues to belong, belong to us. This is, a com this is an amazing prayer that Daniel is laying out to God on behalf of his people. I would actually encourage you to, to sort of um, contrast this with the prayer that Jesus made, the high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, I believe, and see how God, in, in, that Jesus, how he prayed for us and on our behalf as the perfect sinless man. And then look at how Daniel prayed as a sinner among sinful people who was praying for a sinful nation who were under judgment. It's an interesting contrast. It really is a neat study. I would encourage you guys to do that in your own time. And he talks about open shame belonging to us. And then we see in verse 13 that, it, that we get a shift. We start to shift away from um, a, a, a sort of a confessional time 
He already had a time of, of, of adoration where he said how amazing God was, which is a common pattern when you start looking at prayer, uh, how we pray. You know, you have, you have acts, adoration, confession, uh, thanksgiving, and then supplication. And so we see that, that the adoration part has already taken place, the confessional has taken place, and now in verse 13 we shift to away from the sin into that, into that time of, of not only thanksgiving so much as supplication. He's now praying for God to move, right? And so we see that as it is written in the law, all this calamity has come on us. We know that we haven't done what we're supposed to do. We didn't give the land Sabbath rest. We weren't doing what we were supposed to do. We weren't listening to your prophets. We weren't following your commandments. We understand it's on us. But we're asking you, Lord, to turn your iniquity from us. Look what it says there in the middle half of that verse 13. That word Lord pops up again. Yahweh. He is invoking the covenant name of God. Yahweh, our Elohim, our God, turning from our iniquity. We are seeking your favor. Give attention. We're giving attention to your truth. We want to come back into the land. Give it to us, please. Therefore, verse 14, therefore the Lord has kept the calamity in store before and brought it upon us because of what we've done. But we know that you, our Lord, Yahweh, our God, is righteous with respect to all your deeds. That means that your judgment is just. Everything you're doing here is righteous. We deserve it all. You know, I've, I've, I can't count the number of times when I've witnessed to people or I've talked to folks um, where they have said that, you know, they, one of the things they have a hard time accepting is, is how God would send anybody to hell. And I would argue, and I've said this before from the pulpit, that God doesn't send anybody to hell. We send ourselves by our own actions, by our own unwillingness to accept Jesus and the free gift that he gives us for salvation once we recognize that we are sinners. But the reality is, is that hell is there. It's, it's where people go that choose not to follow Jesus. But even beyond that argument, to, to, I, I've had people say, well, I, my grandfather was a great man. He never lied never cheated, never stole, never did anything wrong, which we could argue about that all day long, but, but it's not going to get us anywhere. No one wants to speak ill of the dead. But the reality is that if a person doesn't accept Jesus as their Savior, if you don't accept Jesus as your Savior, then it doesn't matter how good you are. It doesn't matter how many times you don't lie. It doesn't matter how many times you don't steal or, or, or sin in any way, shape, or form. The reality is, is that just one sin is enough to send you to hell, but we know there's not a human being on the earth that's ever just committed one sin. We are sinful creatures. There's sin that we commit every day that we don't even realize. Do you know the Jews actually have a, had a, a, a part of their, uh, their uh, sacrificial system, a day of atonement, where they asked God to forgive them from the sins they didn't even realize that they committed? It was in their system. But we just, we just breeze all over it. A lot of times, we as Christians, we say, well, I've been a Christian 30 years. And we get all sucked up in this self-righteousness and we don't think we can do anything, anything wrong. But that's not true because it doesn't... I mean, we're sinful creatures and that's just the nature of life. We need to continue to move towards God and, and God obviously wants us to do that. But we want to keep moving on. These are righteous acts. Look at verse 16. It says, O Lord, in accordance with, with your... And, look, and, and you can underline the word your, but you also look at that, your righteous acts. Let now your anger and your wrath turn away from where? 
your city, Jerusalem. I would love for Christians in our nation to actually pray this kind of prayer for our people. When was the last time that we had a collective and national day of fasting, sackcloth, and prayer where we pray things like this? Oh Lord, turn your wrath away from this nation. You say, well, what has this nation, what has this nation done to incur the wrath of the living God? You know, I, I don't even, I mean, it's hard to even say where to begin, but if we go alphabetically, I'm just going to have to say, how can any nation expect the continual blessings of a loving, faithful, covenantal God that allows the sin and the, and the, and the, and the horrible nature of abortion to happen every single day by the hundreds of thousands of children? How can we expect that as a nation we are going to get the blessings of God when we allow this to happen within our culture? I mean, I can go on. That's just alphabetically. We could go down the list. And I guarantee you there's a whole lot of sins as a nation that we need to be praying about as a people. You say, well, that's one thing about the nation, but what about us as a community? We can do the same thing as our community. You know, it's the funny thing is, is when we start praying and start really praying, and this is what God, this is what the enemy of God wants. He wants us to stop praying. He wants us not to be able to meet. He thinks that just because we're meeting online and we're doing Facebook time and, and this other stuff, that we're not meeting like we used to, that we are now ineffectual. But I would hazard a guess, and I would say that if we are truly the children of the living God, doing what we've been called to do, we're going to get down on our faces and our knees, especially during times like this, and we're going to ask God to heal our land. We're going to ask God to give us His blessings. We're going to beg Him to forgive our forgiveness for all the things that we have done against Him and His people and His law. And I guarantee you that's not happening, but it should be. We are so used to reaching out to the government and, and begging for, for Big Brother to help us. We're so used to, to, to trying to do it under our own power and our own steam. And, and it was Alaskans. We get this really easily because we're individual people and we like to do things on our own and, and we actually look down on people that can't or won't do stuff on their own. But the reality is, is that no man is an island. All of us need each other. We are lively stones, fitly bound together. We are the house of the living God. We are the temple that God is creating. All of us, the body of, of God, the, the church itself. And whether we're at home or whether we're gathering, we should be at least spending as much time as we can in prayer. You know, we're Baptists here. And so Baptists spend a lot of time in the book because we're people of the book. And I love that. We sing some songs and, and we do some other stuff, but mostly we're people of the book. But you know, we can be people of the book and people of prayer at the same time. And rather than focusing on our denominations, why don't we just all collectively get on our faces and beg our God to heal our land because our sin is great and we need forgiveness. Think about that. Think about that. Daniel was thinking about that. He says, your city Jerusalem is in ruins. Your holy mountain that Jerusalem sits upon is uninhabited because of our sins and iniquity and the fathers of our people, Jerusalem and your people have become a reproach to all those around him. What is it going to take? Does God have to destroy us as a people to rebuild us? I don't know. But I know God will do whatever it takes to accomplish His plan. And that no scheme of man, no scheme of man can thwart the will of God. We know that. But we don't act like it. Look what Daniel says in verse 18. Oh, sorry, verse 17. 
And you can see he's, he's building to a crescendo here, right? You can almost feel Daniel's trembling. You can almost feel the, 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 the sincerity and the humility and the, the, just the, the, the loss and the trauma and the, and the sadness and the grief flowing out of every pore of his body. If this man isn't in tears at this moment when he's praying this, then I don't know if anybody could ever cry when they pray. But I'm telling you, there, this man, I, I just can feel it. He was in that powerful moment of prayer. He says, listen to the prayer of your servant. Listen to me, God, I'm begging you. Please listen to me. Look at verse 18. My God. Wow. Oh my God. Oh my God. Incline your ear. Hear me. Open your eyes and see. When was the last time we asked our God to see us? I mean, think about that for what it really means. Nothing's hidden from God. He sees all of our sins plainly and out in the open. He knows us from stem to stern, top to bottom, nose to our toes. He knows everything about us. Our thoughts, our actions, everything. Whether we're spending time gossiping, whether we're spending time looking at things on the internet we're not supposed to, whether we're spending time Engage in behaviors that we know are counter to the word of God. God's with us. He sees us. We're constantly grieving his spirit. We're constantly putting him in these kinds of positions. You know, I, I think sometimes the one prayer that we don't pray is God hear us and see us. Because it's a scary thing to think just how much he really watches us. We talk about big brother, the deep state. He's the biggest brother in the deepest state that ever was. He knows everything, sees it all. There are no secrets that are hidden from him. But the beautiful thing about it is, and this is the neat thing, the Bible says that if we are faithful to repent and ask forgiveness, he's faithful to forgive. And so the thing is I want to bring you up to speed on is, yes, he knows our sinfulness, he knows our sinful nature, but once we are able to actually articulate a, a, a prayer of forgiveness and we're able to repent of the sin that we have done against him, if we go back to God and said, hey God, remember that sin that I, I committed a few weeks ago? I know I've already asked forgiveness about it, but it's still weighing heavy on me. He's going to look at us and say, no, I don't remember. Because the one thing God can't do is remember our sins once he's forgiven them. Because they are literally as far as the east is from the west. That's what he says. And that's the beautiful hope that we have in God is that we can stand in front of him unashamed. Through the righteousness of Jesus Christ and his death on the cross, we can stand before our God unashamed. We can look him up and we can say, God, you are my father. And he can look at us and say, you are my children. I love you. 
It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. Daniel is craving this moment. You can see it building in verse 19. Look what it says here in 19. He says five different things that I think are really powerful. And they're, they're, it's almost like a staccato, rhythmic, boom, boom, boom kind of thing. He says, Oh Lord, hear. Oh Lord, forgive. Oh Lord, listen. Take action. Do not delay. Because your city and your people are called by your name. The word hear in Hebrew is Shema. Oh Lord, Shema, hear. Oh Lord, forgive. Salah, forgive. Oh Lord, listen. Be alert. Be attentive. Be ready to move. And then he says, take action. That means do. Get up. Do. Move. Don't delay. Don't hesitate. Pull the trigger. Move forward. These are the things that he's begging. He's begging his God. These are the prayers that we should be having now for our church, for our community, for our nation, for our world. Jesus said that we are to go to our Jerusalems, to our Judeas, to our Samarias, to the uttermost parts of the earth. But he's not just talking about missions, he's also talking about prayer. He's also talking about concerns. When was the last time we as a people got together, got down on our face, and just confessed our sins before the Holy God and begged Him to forgive our congregation for our shortcomings? Begged Him to forgive our community for our shortcomings? Begged Him to forgive our state for our shortcomings? Over the years, and I pastored several churches, one of the least attended services that we ever have is a service where we announce ahead of time that all we're going to do is pray. All we're going to do is pray. It's amazing how people say, ah, I think I'll just skip that one, right? I don't really need to go. There was a time in our country's history, there was a time in the, in the history of Christendom when prayer was more important than anything else. When having a prayer service was more important than dealing with anything else. You know, some of the greatest revivals that have ever taken place took, began in rooms of prayer. One of the churches that I pastored was in an area in upstate New York. We were in the, in the area that was where Charles Finney was going through in the late 1800s. And this man would send a prayer team ahead of him Several men. Sometimes these men would come into these cities. They would rent a room in a local hostel or hotel. And they would be there sometimes six, seven days. They wouldn't eat. They'd fast the entire time. And they would just 24-7 be in prayer for that community because Charles Finney was on the way. Powerful things happened. When he came in and preached just the simple, basic word of God, his messages really didn't change from town to town. It was a simple message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You're sinners. You can't go to heaven without him. Stop sinning. Start serving. This is what he, this is what he preached about. 
There was one account of, of a hotel owner in a, in a town not far from where I pastored um, that was concerned about these men who checked in and three days later they had never left their room. They'd been praying. They, he didn't know what they were doing in there. And it says that he showed up and he knocked on the door and nobody answered, but he heard these men mumbling and praying and he couldn't understand what they were saying, largely because the door was in the way, but he heard there was, there was they were literally wailing and crying behind the door. He thought something was going to happen. And when he finally got the key out and opened the door, he found the men of God that were there on their knees and on their faces with tears falling from their, from their eyes praying about the sinful condition of that city. And when Charles Finney finally showed up and actually preached a sermon, bars closed. Houses of ill repute boarded themselves up. Families were reunited. Men got right with God. Women stopped a sinful lifestyles. Whole communities were changed. We haven't heard about that happening in America for over a hundred and some odd years. When? When will it be enough? When will the sin that is our nation be as complete as we as it can be and that we are either called home or we are finally driven to our knees the way we're supposed to be? You know, for me, I don't like to wait. I remember being a kid and I remember sitting around waiting for my father to come home knowing that when he did, I was going to get my rear end tore up because I had done something wrong. And I remember that I, when my dad's car pulled into the, into the driveway, my first instinct, my first desire was to be the first one to, to greet my father because I needed to tell him before my mother did that I did something wrong in the hopes that he might give me some leniency. And sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. But it taught me a valuable lesson that I need to be willing to repent early and often. And when I became a Christian, I began to realize that my repentance is a very important part of the whole process. If you're sitting here today and you don't know Jesus Christ, your personal Savior, I'm telling you now, He loves you. I'm telling you now, He went to the cross to die for you. The Bible says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I'm going to tell you this right now. If you're sitting there and you don't have any hope, you're struggling to wonder, why should you even go forward? We're getting ready to hit the deep dark of winter. The sun's already setting right about 5 o'clock in the afternoon. We know what this does to people in Alaska. If you're sitting there and you're hearing this and you're struggling, if you're dealing with problems, please reach out to us. Send a private message to me or to someone else in this chat. We want to talk to you and tell you more. But I'm here to tell you that nothing you do will ever make you better. You, like me, and like everyone else in the world, are sinners. The only thing that separates me from someone who has no hope and doesn't have Jesus is that Jesus Christ died for me and I accepted his death. I allowed his righteousness to become mine and I allowed my sin to become his. I bowed myself before him and said, I am a sinner. I cannot save myself. Please save me, Jesus. 
If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, please don't let the sun set today without getting your heart right with Him. For the rest of us that know and love Him, I'm telling you now, what, we're, the, what we need to be taken away from this is that we need to be more like Daniel. Daniel, when he was confronted with this calamity that was about to, that was taking place with his nation, he fell on his face and prayed. He prayed for deliverance. He prayed for the covenantal love of God. We need to be praying that ourselves. So those are the two, those are the two calls this morning. If you're not a Christian, I'm telling you now, there's going to be a, a pathway in the chat that will tell you how to come become a know Christ your Savior. And if you do, then you have a call to action. That is, fall on your face this week and pray. Early and often. Pray for you. Pray for your wife. Pray for your family. Pray for your congregation. Pray for everybody you know. But you need to pray. We need to pray. Because nothing... No great movement of God ever began without God's people getting on their face before him and begging him to move. Just like Daniel when he says, don't delay, don't wait, take action and do it now. We have the right to ask these things from our God. He has the right to say no. He has the right to say not yet. But we have the right to ask. And we need to. Pray believing, pray specific, but pray. Speaking of that, let's end in prayer. After we're done praying, there'll be a final song. After the song is done, you're free for this morning. And I encourage you to uh, take this week to look at what God has called you to do. Let's go ahead and pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we love you so much. Though we know that there is just so much, so much that you've given to us, that you love us, that you want for us. Father, we just ask right now that you will guide our hearts and our minds. Allow us to seek you and know you. Father, I just pray so deeply if there's anyone out there that doesn't know you as their Savior, that has never bowed their knee before you, that doesn't even realize in many ways that they are a sinner, that you will reveal their sinful condition to them. You will let them know beyond any shadow of a doubt that they cannot save themselves. And Father, you will reveal yourself in such a way that they know you are their only hope. And Father, I ask that you'll save them. Father, for the rest of us that love you and are called according to your purpose, drive us to our knees that we might be an effective and a mighty force for you. Father, we love you so much. We thank you for what you've done and we ask you to go before us this week that we might be your servants in this world, in this community, in this place, that we might bring your light to a world that desperately needs it, that your son might be lifted up and that all men might be drawn to him. Lord, we love you and we thank you. We ask this now in the name of your precious and mighty son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen and amen and amen. My friends, go with God this week.